Welcome back, you lovers of queer history. This is A History Most Queer, and I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook. Last week, we got to meet a dear friend of mine, Dr. Eric Hunnicky, and in our conversation, he shared his knowledge about Germany before, during, and after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the place that our subject, Charlotte von Malsdorf, had in supporting the queer community in East Berlin. Here is the second half of our conversation. I hope that all of you enjoy. in which Charlotta's life changed when the two Germanys became one? Yeah, I mean, um, so for one thing, um, in the decade or so that she, well, more than a decade that she lived, um, there was a big question about, well, what would the new, East, new unified German queer movement look like? Um, and so there was a talk on the part of certain West German um, gay men in particular who sort of viewed East Germans as being these innocents, right? That they had been sheltered, that they didn't have the opportunity to um, have the sexual opportunities or commercial opportunities that existed in, in West Germany. And so they were like, oh, they just held hands and, you know, this this idea of innocence. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, I think, for many East Germans, part of a larger phenomenon of West Germans sort of assuming a sense of superiority to East Germans. Um, that East Germans had somehow been tainted by association with a government that made them lazy or made them, you know, unable or unwilling to emulate their more quote-unquote successful West German counterparts. So I can't speak to how much she might have resented that, but I can speak to that. That was a big deal in terms of it. And so, you know, part of the reason why she might have, on the one hand, been really excited to get this recognition before her role in the Shazi came out was that it was a an effort on the part of the government to acknowledge that there had, in fact, been uh, an aspect of the queer past in East Germany that was worth celebrating uh, and worth preserving the memory of. So in that sense, I think she would have been grateful for that, but I think that there was this larger sense of, you know, given the fact that there was this infrastructure of queer activism in East Germany, would that be swept into the historical dustbin like everything else in East Germany because the assumption was that West Germany had the superior model of everything, and so it should necessarily take precedence. And so those questions also manifested themselves in the realm of queer activism. What, what would happen to that legacy? And since she was part of that legacy, I imagine that that was something that certainly crossed her mind. So I read something that was kind of interesting about Charlotta's um, museum, and that there was this attack that happened by neo-Nazis. And she writes about it in her book, so... We're going to pause here because mm -hmm. I don't want to get into any copyright infringement issues mm -hmm. with the publicist. So we'll listen to that. 30 skinheads were descending on Malsdorf, brandishing iron bars, starter pistols, and torn out fence slats. I had been looking at the garden from one of the windows of the Grundesite Museum. 
The paper moons we had hung from the clotheslines were tossing in the wind. Eighty or so guests were still there, lightheartedly celebrating the coming of spring. The Tina Turner lookalike had already removed her makeup. The belly dancer no longer gyrated for the guests, but was mingling with them at the cocktail bar. Sausages sizzled on the grill. Gays and lesbians were dancing, and the moon shone through the trees of the park like the scene from a kitschy picture postcard. It was May Day, 1991. My co-worker Betty and I had been kept busy the whole evening, showing guests from near and far through the museum every half hour. I decided to put out the lights and have a quick look outside. I had barely extinguished the last lamp. Then I heard the sharp sound of splintering glass, a noise I have been allergic to for over 54 years. A young man, pale as a corpse, burst into the museum. Call the cops! The neo-Nazis were flailing away at the guests. Everything was happening with terrific speed. From close range with a flare gun, one particularly brave guy shot my second co-worker, Sylvia, in the face, right near the eye. A young woman from Munich wasn't so lucky. He managed to hit her eye, badly damaging the retina. Then someone smashed a fence slat over the head of an 18-year-old girl. Screams and groans mixed with the crash of the bandstand being attacked by the rabble and the info stalls the gay group from East Berlin had erected. Now the bomber jackets were storming the dance floor. There, like a lighthouse, stood a transvestite wearing a fancy dress and a huge red hat. They were going to beat him up, but hesitated like the cowards they were because he too had armed himself with a fence slat. Enveloped by a stream of floodlights, he called out to the rabble, Why are you such animals? He said it twice and suddenly they stopped and looked at each other in bewilderment. Someone yelled, Here comes the cops! And the young Nazis stampeded like a herd of cattle, emptying their ammunition into the neighboring recycling dump. A thousand tons of old paper went up in flames. Everyone was screaming and getting in each other's way. The fire brigade drove up with 50 men, put out the fire, and took the wounded to the hospital. It was chaos. I had run out, hatchet in hand. Sylvie and Betty stopped me and told me it was all over. They grabbed me and dragged me back inside. They knew that if I had gotten my hands on someone, I would have hauled off without considering the consequences. An hour later, I went into the garden with a flashlight. I looked at the wrecked stands, the shattered bottles, the demolished phonograph, and a smashed jukebox. As I swept broken glass from the cellar door panes off the road, I was reminded of another scene so very much like this one. I was on the streetcar going through Malsdorf Sud in the direction of Kirpenig. Looking out the window, I saw the Agoda's grocery store and a soap store owned by Vesefogel, the Jew, had both been wrecked. Corn shop in Kirpenig no longer had window panes. The streetcars stopped in the old part of town, right across from a fabric store. The young owner, tears streaming down her face, was gathering together the remnants of her goods. Three SA men, their legs spread apart, were standing by. You Jewish sow, 
Now you're finally going to learn to work. So we've just played the clip. So that happened in 1991, mm -hmm. that attack. And I don't want to sit there and make too many comparisons to current events, but we do see a lot of individuals with similar belief systems reach, uh, not reaching out, attacking mm -hmm. uh, queer people, black and brown people, and so on, uh, both here and in Germany. I mean, just recently there was that extremely failed coup attempt. <laughs> there was, and there was also, even more recently than that, in the last week or two, an attempt to uh, burn a pretty newly established memorial to queer victims of Nazism, uh, among other yeah. memorial sites. Um, and so, you know, yes. So I'm affirming your premise, unfortunately. It, it must have been strange for her to sit there and as, as alluded to in the excerpt, mm -hmm. you know, she was remembering back to, you know, Kristallnacht in Absolutely. In, in Germany when the the, uh, the Nazis were you know, busting yeah, the shops. Yeah, when she up. would have been about 10 years old, 9, mm -hmm. 10 years old around the time, uh, probably 10. And so here she is approaching the end of her life yeah. and the same situation is happening. Yeah, and I think that that's something which in, in response... Uh, uh, continuation of my response to your earlier question about how she might have reacted to changes after unification. So one of the things, one of the, the things that the international community and particular places like Britain and France were very afraid of was that a unified Germany would kind of go back to its old bad habits, if you will, <laughs> right? Um, and that it would be conducive to the reemergence of a problematic form of nationalism. After the war was over, um, it was kind of taboo for Germans to express a kind of national pride in the way that the Nazis but other nationalists had associated with because there was the fear that that would be interpreted and might in fact be a manifestation of some kind of, uh, you know, self-aggrandizing territorial aspirations, conquer the world, etc. that had been associated with Nazis, Nazi and other radical right-wing movements. Um, but it's interesting that in the aftermath of the um, reunification, and this is a phenomenon that seemingly continues to this day, uh, it seems that neo-Nazi movements found fertile ground in a number of communities in the former East Germany. Um, now, there's a political scientist who's done like a mapping and says, well, if you look at places that supported the Nazis electorally when there were still elections to do so, and places that tend to vote in favor of radical right-wing parties now, there's a lot of overlap in both East and West. So, by all means, there are plenty of neo-Nazis and their supporters in, in West Germany and, and the part of Germany now that used to be West Germany. But I think in the East, there was a particular reason why this was uh, noteworthy, um, one of which was that neo-Nazism wasn't supposed to exist during the East German period, so even when there were people who harbored those sentiments, uh, they might have been imprisoned or jailed, but there was no like public kind of engaging with this as even an issue because uh, one of the official sort of stories that East German government told was that all East Germans were in fact socialists by definition or communists by definition, therefore they too had been victims of Nazism. Um, and so the one, one explanation was that it was a failure of East German education to grapple with many Germans' involvement, guilt, complicity with Nazi crimes that made pe people not necessarily understand why, you know, gravitating towards Nazism was not a good thing. Uh, and certainly would not um, be received favorably. 
but also others um, viewed it as kind of a refuge for the voiceless. And as you said, there were East Germans who felt like there was no place for them in the New Germany. And whether they had been committed communists or not, it seemed like this was a movement that got people's attention. This was a way of making your voice heard. And however deplorable the actual acts of this particular attack on the museum were, uh, I think that was some, a reason for it. Um, so I think that it's interesting how you know, the radical right in, in Germany and other parts of Europe has evolved since this period. Because on the one hand, it is true that there are radical rightists who kind of have a, a number of different targets for their hatred and their violence that include people of color, Jews, people who are disabled, people who are LGBTQ+, any number of other categories. But there's also been a process of reinvention in certain parts of the radical right in Germany and in the Netherlands where they actually try to recruit um, queer people and oftentimes uh, gay men and lesbians in particular because they uh, build themselves as a bulwark against things that are threatening to queer people. Um, so one of the arguments is that, well, we are opposing the Islamization of European society because people who are from Islamic backgrounds or countries don't support European values as they pertain to gender equality or as they pertain to gay rights. And so, you know, one of the co-leaders of the Alternative for Germany, which is a increasingly popular uh, right-wing populist party in Germany today, um, was a lesbian. And so it's interesting how even though radical right-wing people and neo-Nazis, not necessarily always the same, because there are some differentiations within that movement, but nonetheless that they, um, some of them continue to view queer people or queerness as the enemy, as part of the things that they are threatened by or fighting against. But others actually have changed their tune in that area, that they've sort of almost adopted a more progressive stance hmm. with regard to queerness in order to be able to come up with a new way of denigrating immigrants or people from a background that they still do not feel has a place in, in Europe. So I think that that excerpt really showed the poignancy of Charlotte von Mahlersdorf asking, hmm, is a reunified Germany really going to become a problematic Germany again? Is it going to unleash these pent-up sort of, you know, this nationalist kind of violence uh, that one would hope would have been consigned to the historical dustbin? But it's also important to think that since that point in time to see how radical right-wing individuals and movements in Germany and beyond are, are, are themselves evolving on some of these issues. And some people remain the types of people who might support that kind of attack or engage in that kind of attack, and others actually have changed their tune um, or have actively been self-identifying queer people who've involved themselves in these movements because they feel that it is actually beneficial for them to do so. Um, so I, I feel as if in doing so they are overlooking the fact that many others who are in the movements with them probably don't share their sentiments and uh, they are overlooking the history of things that fed into the movements that they're part of. But oh, I mean, but it's worth recognizing that it's not just a uniformly anti-LGBTQ space anymore. And that is, uh, depending upon one's perspective, a little ray of light or actually alarming because they found a new way to recruit a new constituency to their larger project of hate and exclusion. 
Well, I mean, at one point in time, Rome and Hitler were friends, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> until <so>, they weren't. <laughs> yeah, so there is a precedent to yeah. the involvement of queer people. And so, you know, I mentioned that stereotype of the Nazi party, but there were queer men, especially at the time, who did feel as if uh, the Nazi party exemplified a kind of idealized masculinity that they found appealing. So, yeah, it's a little terrifying. So she did write a book. Yeah. We kind of, you know, we played that ex excerpt uh, mm -hmm. about her. Uh, anyway, she wrote this book about her life. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and the fact that it then went to Broadway. Mm -hmm. Well, the book and the Broadway show are different, even though they have the same title, which from copyright issues is kind of interesting to me. But um, I think that, you know, she... And I'm using she pronouns here, even though I'm not really sure exactly what pronouns she might have used for herself. So I, I should have mentioned that earlier in terms of because, you know, she identified as a transvestite as opposed to a transgender person. Um, it would be interesting to know if we had her here today, how she would comment on the question of pronoun usage. She used a female name. She dressed in stereotypically female garb. Although it's interesting what kind of female garb she chose. It was often very kind of what one might call modest or even sort of not sort of urban cosmopolitan but almost sort of peasant dresses if you will not maybe peasant but um, something that wasn't particularly um, fashionable um, and so I think that the very fact that she decided to write this autobiography that she got it published um, is itself I guess a positive sign that that was possible that she felt it was possible that she was able to get her voice out there but this is the one of the things that's difficult when we think about the whole goal of doing LGBTQ plus history especially when we're looking at the emerging focus on issues of transgender identity right how do we talk about people in the past uh, when they didn't use the same identity categories that we use today so mm -hmm. is it is it fair to sort of call Charlotte von Mausdorff transgender if that isn't a term that she either knew or would have necessarily used for herself. Um, you know, I've looked at various ways. There's one book that just refers to her as trans. It removes the gender part, mm -hmm. so that could be transvestite, it could be transgender, it could be, you know, or it could just be the modern notion of using trans as opposed to transgender as a preferable term. That's sort of an umbrella term. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, so those questions are tricky. Um, I would have to do, one of the things I'd be interested in looking at, and I'm just thinking about that right now, is the reception of the book, like how people, how it was reviewed, what publications reviewed it, um, and, and how widely it was sort of received as being something. But when we're looking for people who are gender non-conforming in history, on the one hand, you know, one of the goals of queer history is to make visible that which has been ignored or invisible or less visible or less noticeable than before. But the fact of the matter is that we don't have a whole lot of similar documents of people who, like Charlotte von Mazdorf, um, lived a life that did not necessarily accord with the gender or sexual norms of their time. Um, and so I think that I would hope that there would be more such documents. Maybe there's still stuff lurking in archives or in people's basements that would yield more light. <laughs> um, because, you know, we're putting a lot of weight on her shoulders, right? That, that, that how much can we actually deduce from her life about what it might have been like to be someone who inhabited her subject position where there are others in her subject position who made very different choices or who had a very different experience of what was actually possible for them in terms of how they lived their lives um, and so those I think are questions that deserve further exploration and some historians out there are already doing a magnificent job of that but I think there's more work to be done.
It's it yeah. It's very tough. Uh, this whole month is it's August. It's Trans mm -hmm. Awareness or Trans History Month. I'm sorry, and you know a few of the people that I've covered. It's it's not. 100% one way or the other. It's, it's very difficult sometimes to categorize these people. And in fact, uh, back in June, we had an episode on Sylvia Rivera, and mm -hmm. she uh, would often refer to herself as either a transvestite mm -hmm. or a gay man mm -hmm. or transgender. So it, it bounced around. And the thing that I try to do is do my best to stick to the pronouns, if I'm aware of them, mm -hmm. that they would have used themselves and hope for the best yeah we, we unfortunately in, in a lot of cases especially with individuals who are dead mm -hmm. sometimes have been dead for centuries it's you just have to do your best yeah and to the extent that the people that she kind of became involved in to get this homosexual initiative in, in berlin off the ground would have been, I mean, that was a movement that attracted both gay men and lesbians, but some of the founding figures were gay men, so to what extent did she identify as one of them, but one who just happened to wear female garb? So those are those are um, things that I think we need to be cognizant of, and also that those things can and probably did change over time, depending upon the context in which yeah. uh, Charlotte was presenting herself or themselves, if we want to use them. I, I have ambiguous feelings about using they as an alternative to gendered pronouns, because it is also a choice of using a sort yeah, of gender-neutral pronoun. Mm -hmm that was not an option that was necessarily available to Charlotte at the time and isn't something they wouldn't have necessarily, she or they, see, I just used it, <laughs> yeah. would have gravitated towards. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I think that I'm hoping that the existence, the, the, the fact that there's the memoir, the fact that there's a Broadway show, which, by the way, there was a version of it done uh, in Oklahoma, uh, and I thought it was very well done, and so I'm hoping that there can be more productions of the show um, so that it can get out there in terms of getting people to be aware of this facet of Germany and German history. You know, I, I teach German history professionally, and one of the things that I often do is to ask people to think of important figures in German history. And Hitler usually tops that list, but invariably it is a very older and white and male list. And I think that, you know, telling stories like those of Charlotte von Mansdorf can be an important part of the project of diversifying the historical imagination and knowledge base so that people can realize that, yeah, dead white dudes are important, but there are a lot of other people who might have identified differently who are also worth knowing and preserving the stories of. Yeah, that is definitely one of the problems that historians run into is that sometimes the lives of women um, were just not considered important enough to write about unless they happen to be, say, a Queen Elizabeth I mm -hmm. or uh, someone like that, Cleopatra, you know, they're going to write volumes about them, but sure. uh, you might not know much about the wife of this lord over here, mm -hmm. even if she might have been the brains in the operation. Yeah. He gets the credit. Um, it's unfortunate, and but I think we can still, it, it's getting interesting looking at some of the stuff that's coming out probably over the past few years, mm -hmm. where people are able to find out a little bit more information about the quieter parts, the mm -hmm. lives of peasants, for instance, in, you know, medieval Europe, or the lives of queer people mm -hmm. in, in the world, or the lives of black folks in 
Tudor England, things yeah. like that. You know, they did exist. <laughs> so, sure. um, and one of the tensions within the project of LGBTQ plus history more generally, and this is nothing new, but um, is what is the purpose of the history, right? So there have been a number of people who've gravitated towards doing the history of historically marginalized groups, and often so, have, oftentimes have done so from outside of academia because it wasn't possible or they didn't get recognition for doing so. So whether it's history of women, people of color, etc. Um, part of that project is to be able to say you are not alone, right? There are mm, people yeah. like you in history and we need to find them, figure out what they did or didn't do and celebrate them, right? To create this sort of lineage. And that's something where if you look at what people around Hilschfeld's time, they were also trying to do that type of history a hundred years ago, right? They were trying to identify illustrious uh, gay people in the past to serve as inspiration to people in the present. But then there's also been a sort of strand where people have said, well, that's all well and good. But, you know, part of the problems with history is that it is just, it has often been used as kind of a celebratory way of building people up. So, you know, nations telling these great stories about themselves mm -hmm. and not paying attention to the bad parts or the things that are not as easy to talk about. And so aren't we like reproducing some of those problems if we just do the history of marginalized groups in the past and present in that same vein of just celebrating? And that's why I think that the work that is complicating the legacy of, for instance, of Hilschfeld, as I mentioned earlier, as having embodying sort of more and less progressive tendencies is an important part of that. But that that type of history has also been criticized because oftentimes instead of focusing on individuals, it focuses on discourse, right? The way people talk about things and it becomes kind of a depersonalized history whereby, uh, you know, it's almost like his people kind of are there, but they are not as important as these sort of seemingly abstract or impersonal forces or institutions that are advancing dialogue about things. So um, so that, that's that been a little bit of a tension within the project of LGBTQ plus history itself. I think that you can do both, right? I think that you can sort of celebrate and and, and complicate um, the stories of people like Charlotte von Malastov and do a history of the conditions under which it was possible or not possible for someone like Charlotte to live or express themselves in the way that they do. Well, I mean, um, we did an episode about uh, James the sixth of Scotland, James mm -hmm. the first of, of England. I put him in the gay camp, maybe by, but he mm -hmm. uh, is kind of an icon. He also was very, very prominent in slave in, in, in slavery. He mm -hmm. was very prominent in the uh, persecution of women under the witch trials and stuff. So there's good and bad. I think yeah. everybody's complex, mm -hmm. and I hope that I do a good job on that. Mm. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, but yeah, I like like with with uh, Charlotta, she was able to sit there and make a, a safe space for queer people in a time and a place that, from all that we can see, was maybe not exactly the warmest or the coziest. Mm -hmm. She also collaborated with the Stasi, so yeah. <laughs> she's. <laughs> and sometimes one of the ways in which you are able to resist a regime is by participating in it by mm -hmm. by yeah. either whether consciously or unconsciously, right? People can sort of fight the, you know, sometimes you need to use the tools of the oppressor to fight the oppressor, and other times you feel as if you've been co-opted by the oppressor because you're using their tools and thereby they've sort of won the argument morally or otherwise. So it's it's tricky to figure out, you know, when you do history, the question of moral judgment and, you know, who gives you the right to judge people because you didn't know what it was like to be them or, you know, what you might have done if you were in a similar circumstance. Um, I think it's okay to pass judgment historically, but I think you have to do so being conscious of 
what your own privilege is in making, being able to make those kinds of judgments, and also trying to see that it might have felt different if, in fact, you were able to transport yourself or put yourself in that person's shoes. Um, that doesn't exonerate people of, of different kinds of behaviors, but it does enable us to think that it can be complicated to just come up with knee-jerk reactions of someone being good, bad. Well, uh, James Baldwin, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to paraphrase quite badly, but he, <laughs> he said something to the effect that, you know, black people can be anything, including mm -hmm. dictators and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, awful people, as well as good people. So, so can queer people. Yeah. And it's, it's fine to look at all of these aspects. Yeah. Because it paints a clearer picture of the human story in general. Yeah. And to do another butchered paraphrase, Marx is famous for having said that people devise history and circumstances not of their own making or devising. And that what that reminds us of is that the possibilities of people to enact a queer identity, if we're going to use that terminology, however presentist it might be, are shaped by conditions that are subject to change and that might make people make choices or uh, engage in kinds of behaviors that they might not have under different circumstances. So it's important to keep in mind. All right. Well, I think we've thoroughly covered the life of Charlotta, besides saying, you know, she did move to Sweden. And I do wonder, did she have Ikea furniture? I cannot speak to her choice of <laughs> furniture, although I would hope slash suspect that she tried to continue uh, her preservationist impulse in terms of her furniture choices during the last decade of her life. But I can't speak to that directly. You know. um, but but what, I, what I can say is that... Um, you know, one of the things that is uh, talked about in terms of queer activism, especially in post-1960s, is, you know, the United States played a huge role in terms of catapulting ideas and even the association of Christopher Street Day, as I mentioned before, is something that was co-opted by Germans to describe their own pride celebrations. But that can also be problematic, right? It can be sort of a form of benevolent cultural imperialism where you assume that there are certain parts of the country that, or world that are more advanced or that kind of set an agenda that other parts of the world could or should follow. And I think that one of the additional forms of value of looking at Charlotte von Mahlstoff, in addition to just what she was able to accomplish and the moral questions that arise with the choices that she made along the way, is that it, it forces us to consider about what was similar or different about the paths that different countries have taken on this journey towards uh, acceptance, tolerance, celebration of queerness. Um, and, you know, especially in a world today where there are some countries which are enacting awful legislation because they view the very idea of an LGBTQ plus movement as a hostile foreign imposition, um, whether that's because it's associated with a neo-colonialist impulse or because it's associated with values that are seen as hostile to indigenous values. Even though that is not as much part of the conversation in Germany today as it is in some of its neighbors like Poland and Hungary and Russia, um, it is important to recognize that things happen differently in different countries or linguistic communities, and that's a good thing. It's also important, though, there's been sometimes a tendency within German historical scholarship to kind of focus on Germany because Germany did play a big role in terms of, you know, uh, advancing the conversation, even developing some terminology in the 19th oh, century. Yeah. Change to this. And so it's important to acknowledge that, but also not to overemphasize or to sort of uh, allow one's focus to be too much on Germany and not to recognize recognize how Germany and German-speaking individuals were operating in contexts like Hirschfeld himself that were not exclusively German. 
Mm. Um, I mean, one of the uh, interesting figures that I've done some research on in East Germany was Rudolf Klimmer. And so he was a male-identifying psychiatrist who did not necessarily live as an out gay man, even though he had a long-time companion. And I imagine for people who knew him that he would have uh, you know, been okay with being identified as such. But he was someone who... Um, during the Nazi period had been removed from his position, not because of his queerness, although there's mixed things about whether he was in fact punished for queer acts, but because of his politics, he was left-leaning socialist. Um, and then when the East German regime established itself, he tried to establish a gay rights organization. Like he tried to pick up where Hirschfeld left off. He uh, tried to um, have, you know, be there for his patients in terms of in the private realm of counseling, but also otherwise. And he wrote a lot of letters to the government to try to say, you know, look, if you say that you are the antithesis of the Nazi regime, then why aren't you doing more to unpack or undo the damage that the Nazis have done to uh, queer people and queer lives? Um, and so he was someone who, you know, chose not to leave East Germany. Charlotte von Mansdorf was someone who also chose not to leave East Germany maybe because it was politics, maybe because it was home, but maybe it was because they both felt that whatever restrictions that existed, that there was a possibility for them to imagine a different kind of world and that they could do something to work towards that world within East Germany. Now, Klimmer himself was also, for part, a significant part of his career, a ship doctor, so he actually wound up having an opportunity, unlike many of his other East German counterparts, to be able to travel to different parts of the world at different points in time. But I think it is noteworthy that you know, however repressive the regime might have been, however many restrictions there might have been on organizational activity, that these two individuals speak to the resilience of the human spirit and to making us think about, well, what were the possibilities for people to develop a sense of their own identity and to develop connections with other people uh, when the circumstances were not exactly conducive to that happening? We may have to do an episode on him. <laughs> yeah, he's a really fascinating uh, character, so historical figure, I guess, would be more appropriate. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you, Dr. Eric Haneke, for uh, speaking with us, and I'm sure I will have you back. Yeah, I would um, love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation today, and I think that Charlotte von Mansdorf would be very happy on some level to know that uh, her legacy is being preserved in this way. Awesome. Now, if any of my listeners would like to find out more about you or get a hold of you, do you have ways of doing this? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, uh, I, have a, I teach at the University of Central Oklahoma, and so I have a website there, and so you can look me up on the internet, and uh, if you have any questions, you can reach me through my contact information there. Awesome, awesome. All righty. Well, we will close out this episode, and again, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. All right, thank you. I probably learned a lot more this time around than I have some of the other times. Right. And it's nice having an expert instead of an amateur. Oh, you're <laughs> not an amateur. You're an expert in your own right. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. And that was our second half of the life of Charlotte von Malsdorf and the second half of the interview with Dr. Eric Haneke. Again, I hope that all of you learned a lot. I know that I did. Um, it's interesting because he and I over the years have kind of talked about her life, and so I've been looking forward to making this episode, I mean, ever since I did the first one. And I'm sure that we'll have him back because 
we we touched on a lot of other aspects of queer life in Germany, the, the sort of Eastern Bloc thing. So I'm sure we'll have him back to inform us and entertain us. So if you guys all liked that episode, then rate us on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen. If you have any questions, concerns, criticisms, you can shoot off an email to a history most queer at gmail.com and come by to our Instagram page. You can see images of Charlotta and the museum, which by the way, does still exist in Berlin. If you get a chance to visit uh, Berlin, go by and, and check that museum out and you can kind of remember that this really fascinating person put all of this stuff together and and that in that museum of sort of burgeoning or continuing queer movement was starting to happen in in East Berlin and was meeting and I think that that's fascinating all right I look forward to next week where we will once again meet on a history hump day to dive into more LGBTQIA plus historical, fantastical, and miraculous tales. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye. Woo! <laughs>